Ross Ulbricht is serving a double life sentence without parole for all nonviolent charges for creating a website. Please help free this peaceful man. Go to freeross.org and sign and share the petition. Hey everybody, this is the Dissecting Liberty podcast. Today we had on, I'm going to get this right, Vidivisi Veni on, and uh, if I got that wrong, you can attack me on Twitter, I don't mind. Um, he's also at Steve Lol You Wish on Twitter, and uh, we had a great conversation ranging from everything to the future of the state and uh, broad philosophical discussions, and I uh, hope y'all enjoy. I've always been more of a uh, a uh, Doseques guy myself. Oh, me personally, I'm more of a uh, Negro Modelo guy myself. Yes, that is yes. a very good beer. <laughs> yes, Liberty Zero doesn't drink, and every time we're talking, every time. it always goes to alcohol. <laughs> every yeah, time, as one does. Uh, <laughs> And it's very, you've got to be very explicit. It's Negro Modelo. It's not Modelo Especial. That's it's like retarded younger brother. You don't do it special. <laughs> but I agree. I like the, I had one of those just the other day. I had one left in my fridge. Ooh, very nice. Very nice. I've been big on uh, Imperial Stouts. I've been trying more and more of these recently. Yeah. And um, I've been a fan. I got to tell you, Liberty Zero knows what I'm talking about. My favorite beer is Shiner Bach, brewed out of Shiner, Texas. All right, I know that one. (laughs) Now, I'm detecting a couple different accents here. So, um, let me see. I thought I heard a southern accent there for a second. Was that that cotton there? Howdy. Howdy there, Frailer. How how southern is that there? Now, see, I'm in Louisiana, so it's more like... uh, Bonjour, como se va? Ah, uh, right. uh, tu s'appelles? Oh, ah, je, je m'appelle Cotan. Ah, uh, je, je suis, suis <laughs> garçon, je suis fatigué, je suis très fatigué. Oh, oui, oui. <laughs> <laughs> and what about, what about Liberty Zero? Where are you from, good sir? Uh, I'm not really from anywhere. But oh. right now, uh, <laughs> I, I live in Texas. Hmm. Oh, you don't have much of an accent. Is uh, you born and raised, or? No, no, I was like born in Missouri, and then, ah, uh, like I Missouri. lived overseas quite a bit. So, mm, have you guys been watching the show Ozark? Oh my goodness! Because no, my, my God, Ozark! I, I don't want to start plugging shows or anything, but you know, Netflix this is probably one of the darkest shows I've seen. But if you like, like Breaking Bad, for example, yeah. Ozark, man, oh, it's at least as good as Breaking Bad. No joke. No joke. Oh, wow. I, I yeah. hear them compared a lot. But what about the Tiger King? What about the best show Netflix ever produced? <laughs> I haven't actually seen that one yet, but I'm, I'm hearing good I. things. I haven't, I haven't watched that. I started Stranger Things the other day. Oh, mm. how you liking it? I actually really like it so far. I, yeah, like I, watched... tra- I wasn't impressed with the trailer. Because I'm like, yeah. it's mm-hmm. a bunch of kids, you know? Like, right, <laughs> right, right. Mm, but, fucking kids, nah, actually, dude. Right? I'm, yeah. Anytime I see something with like kids or teenagers in the trailer, I'm like, nah. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. But it's I've been keeping up with Joe Exotic for some years now, so I'm excited to see him get the recognition he deserves. 
Wait, so exotic. That's the that's the Tiger King guy. Oh, no, really? Have you? <laughs> yeah, he ran for president in 2016, and his campaign video is the best thing you'll ever watch. L- let me guess. Let me guess. That's... He ran as a libertarian. Uh, I don't know. I know his campaign manager was a libertarian, but I don't know if he actually he ran as one. Of course he was. <laughs> Somebody was a libertarian in that camp. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. We got we got to be able to look at ourselves, make fun of ourselves. There's so much in the libertarian community that's just so like, as as someone who's been there since the Ron Paul days and been like in it, like you just want to roll your eyes sometimes at some of the shit that goes on. So you got to be able to look at yourselves and laugh sometimes. Oh, for sure. We're the party. Well, I say we, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the libertarian party is the party of the guy who strips on on stage at the convention yes. right oh he, oh, he, yeah. he was uh no i'm sorry he did not run for president he ran for a governor of oklahoma and he was in the libertarian party oh see <laughs> I, I i looked him up in a joe exotic presidential campaign and uh, the first thing is a uh, uh, article from Huffington Post that says, "Meet the gay zookeeper who's making a bid for president." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh, and then he had a video, and all his videos he made uh, for off uh, when he was running have tigers in them, of course, like these white tigers. He looks like he's a white Mike Tyson. And, oh my god! Uh, <laughs> and, and he made a video. Uh, talking directly to donald trump calling him out on stuff and it's amazing he's just what, was, what year was this 2018 oh no shit huh <laughs> <sighs> dude that's fucking great there's some real characters in the whether you want to say the libertarian party or the libertarian movement or the small l libertarian big l libertarian whatever the case it doesn't matter that whole spectrum we we get some real characters in there for better oh, yeah worse. Yeah, I was supposed to go to uh, my state's uh, libertarian convention, and I was going to become a delegate, and then I woke up all, <laughs> all stomach upset, not feeling well. So they were still holding that, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a friend of mine went. He drove up from uh, Baton Rouge to go, and uh, he stopped by, and he said they got started really late because they tried to do a bunch of like uh, telecommunications to get people in. Yeah. And because uh, not many people wanted to go, and he said it took them forever. They got like a uh, at least uh, started like an hour later because of just the technical difficulties. Mm. So and then I was supposed to join my state party and I forgot, and I already paid twenty five to join the national party, and I wasn't excited about paying another twenty five to join the dumbass state party. And they don't yeah. even. I mean, if you join the national party, they give you a. Uh, a, a subscription to the Libertarian Newsweek magazine or whatever, where you get to look in there and see Mark Whitney uh, uh, advertisements. And I love his uh, I love his uh, his slogan: "Keep banging." Uh, yeah, they do that, and you also get like a bumper sticker. I wonder what the State Party does. Probably not that much. His they interview some... with uh... yeah, his interview on Burning Boots was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of uh, speaking of delegates, delegations, and whatnot, I was let me see. So let me see. 2000, 2008, I was big into the Ron Paul campaign then, and then two thousand twelve. So I live in Massachusetts. I, I still live in Massachusetts, and um, 
it was in District 6 at the time. This is in the North Shore of Boston. And this is uh, currently the governor of Massachusetts is Charlie Baker. Okay, he's a Republican, but he's a relatively, I wouldn't say libertarian-leaning, but not so conservative Republican kind of person. He's a Massachusetts Republican where, you know, basically, uh, you know, every, Massachusetts Republican is like a gay Democrat anywhere else. So anyway... <laughs> Basically, he was one of the delegates that were running there. A lot of establishment Republicans were running as delegates in throughout Massachusetts. Um, and in our District 6 area, there was actually a lot of very well-coordinated um, campaign between the Ron Paul people. So we're all in the Republican Party. We've all been registered for a while. And we went to our district caucuses. And throughout the whole state, this is in 2012, when Mitt Romney was running to be the nominee, we actually overthrew the majority of the uh, Mitt Romney establishment Republican delegates and replaced them all with Ron Paul delegates to be sent down to Tampa Bay. We effectively, majority, took over the Republican Party at the caucus level. Dang. However, yeah, it was pretty hardcore, man. You should have seen the looks on their faces. Charlie Baker, you know, Kerry Healy, who was lieutenant governor at the time, a lot of establishment Republicans, they did not know what fucking hit them, man. But they made it, they, you know, we did the counts and everything. We crushed them all except one, maybe two delegates were all Ron Paul delegates. So when the time came to actually have the delegates go down to Tampa Bay, the Mitt Romney, the Romney campaign and the Republican Party actually colluded and uh, dismissed uh, the duly elected uh, caucus delegates from Tampa Bay and handpicked their own delegates. This is actually something that was on Rachel Maddow and everything. Uh, one of our delegates that we elected was on uh, Maddow on MSNBC. So, of course, he's going to jump all over it, anything that's anti-Republican in any way. Um, <laughs> even though we aren't certainly no fans of uh, Rachel Maddow, um, but this is something that she actually covered. So it just goes to show you that, you know, when it comes to the system itself, it is rigged against liberty. There's no question that it is absolutely rigged against liberty all the way down, even if you follow the rules as they are written, and you overthrow those in the system based on the rules, it's a big club, and you ain't in it. And they can change the rules whenever they want, and then that's exactly what they did. They changed the rules ex post facto, and then were able to pick their own delegates because it's literally a private club. They can do that if they want. And uh, there was no legal recourse that, that we had, unfortunately. Yeah, I had so. heard about that with the... Uh with them kicking out the ron paul delegates yep yeah just wild uh, yeah there's some shit man there's some shit it was really it was an eye-opening moment for me when it came to my political activism at the time had been having been someone who was quite it was a libertarian activist i guess you could say from 2008 through 2012 that was really an eye-opening moment and um showed that you can't really get a an official kind of libertarian into the republican party to win in that way you can't have the libertarian party win in a way there needs to be a multi-pronged kind of attack and it's it's going to start at the cultural level before you really yeah. start to see any change it's going to be cultural it's going to be intellectual it's going to take a long time it's going to take many generations i think it's like that's that nice it's that meme you know that meme the back to the future it shows the picture of um Marty McFly, and he's holding the guitar and shit. Except it shows Ron Paul's face on Marty McFly, and he's and he's. It says like Liberty. You know, you guys might not be ready for it right now, but your kids are gonna love it. So 
I, I, would be, I wouldn't be surprised if it takes another 100, 200, 300 years before we see any real change. But um, I do think that people are laying foundations and it starts at the market level. Yeah, I agree. Zero, should we just uh, carry on or do you want to just do an intro? No, we'll do an intro later. It'll be fine. Okay. Uh, I was I looked it up because I, I, I don't know all the facts, uh, but... I couldn't find it, but in 2008, um, the uh, Republican convention here was overrun by libertarians, and it almost got violent. Like it almost, uh, uh, like sparked a riot. It was a. I know a couple of people that were there. Was it the libertarian the convention or Republican convention? Was it the, it, it, the Republican convention and mm. uh, Ron Paul delegates or Ron Paul uh, or people that would vote for Ron Paul were uh, being elected delegates, and it was freaking mm. the uh, people out, and and uh, the the establishment Republicans were getting belligerent, and the oh, libertarian shit. people weren't helping, and then mm -hmm. the police got involved, and. Like uh, people were throwing stuff, and it was a it was a big deal. Like I heard people that were there tell me that it was like a scary thing. They didn't know what was about to happen. Holy shit! I I'd heard some stuff about this. I don't know if that was one of the ones that I heard about in 2008. Stuff like that that did happen in 2008. I remember some stuff like that happened in 2012. Um, uh, Nevada was another one. Something like that happened at some convention in Nevada, I think. Um, I don't remember if it was 2008 or 2012, but there's been, a, yeah, there's been a couple times where Republican, conservative-leaning Republicans and libertarian-leaning Republicans or just straight-up libertarians trying to take over the Republican Party have really fucking butted heads and it's gotten real ugly at times. So I'm not, I'm not fucking surprised at all. Yeah. I think, I think the takeaway from all this is that you just need to vote harder. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah. like... Part of the reason I was going to do this is because I don't think, like, I wouldn't vote for, uh, uh, like, if I were a delegate, I would vote for Hornberger. Uh, I do not think he's going to be president. I don't, I don't harbor that fantasy at all. But I uh, also think that it's good to get a principled person out there to spread the message. I think that's the lasting impact. Mm. Like, uh, the fact that Trump is president and what he's saying is going to have a more lasting impact than, like, anything he uh, enacts, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's uh, definitely something to that, I think, because Ron Paul never got elected. He ran multiple times. He, he ran for president in the late 80s, I think, as, as, a, as a liberty. 88, right, right. And there's, I think there's no question that, that, like, Ron Paul, for example, even though you know, I don't agree with him as much now as I used to then, and my views on a few things have changed. Um, it's really hard, I feel like, for anyone to deny that Ron Paul definitely, people like Ron Paul, sparked a kind of philosophical, intellectual kind of revolution that even though he didn't win the presidency, that that kind of education that he did through that platform that he used was much more effective than any kind of gridlock, lame duck presidency that, that even could have possibly happened anyway. Oh, yeah. And, like, if, if uh, you listen to, like, Lou Rockwell, and I think it was maybe Jeff Deist, who was also on his staff, uh, yeah, they were saying that if Ron Paul ever got close to getting the nomination, like, they were going to have to, like, lock it down in terms of his security. Because... Mm. Like they thought, you know, he's going to go down in a plane or, you know, he's going to get Kennedy basically. 
mm, it's too much. It's too much for the establishment to, to even handle in the first place. Yeah. Which makes you wonder why Trump is still standing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I'll, I'll, with regards to Trump and, and voting and everything, I mean, I mean, I, I wrote quite an extensive piece on this on my blog years ago that still gets quite a few hits today. And um, it's about the idea of, of voting and why I actually do believe in voting. I don't believe in voting in the sense of, oh, we should vote because it's going to enact change. But I do think that on the road to growing the idea of liberty out there, that there's a toolbox of doing that. And, the, and voting is one of many tools that can kind of help and that, that can kind of help go in that direction. Not so much that it's a very effective tool, because I don't think it's a very effective tool at all, enhancing liberty. The state likes to grow. And that's it. The state doesn't really like to shrink back. You don't really see many libertarian policies or anti-policies, if you could call them that, actually shrinking the state. But I do see voting in terms of, like you could call it the lesser of two evils, anything to keep the commie, leftist, social justice warrior hordes at bay, that just to buy us some time while the market innovates, while technology innovates, while we still are kind of cradling this concept of liberty. It's still in its cradle. It's still a baby as far as I'm concerned. And anything that can kind of stem the tide of the leftist hordes, I, I, I feel like is, is good in my book. Um, and that's why I wouldn't say I support Trump, because I don't support Trump. But I am a definitely a strong Trump prefer, I guess you could say, compared to the alternatives. And that's coming from more of a consequentialist angle, as I've kind of shifted from a and a deontological libertarian to a more consequentialist libertarian in recent years. And um, I do think that there's a lot of tools in affecting and, you know, minimizing at least the growth of the state. Some are more effective than others. And voting, I do think, is one of them. I do see your point. And, uh, and I don't, I, I, there's, there is some merit to that. Uh, on the other hand, I kind of sus uh, ascribe to the argument that um, or I, I, I think that there's uh, merit to the idea that basically, basically when they switch out the Democrats and the Republicans, what you have is the Democrats, they accomplish all of the policy goals that the Republicans cannot do because they're Republicans and the left will, you know, try to fight them at, at all costs. Right. But, you know, then when you get the, uh, the other party in then you're going to be able to accomplish all the goals, right? And so that's that's kind of how I think about it. Like, uh, so you said basically what? If I'm understanding you correctly, what? Um, and maybe you're saying something else, but along the lines of basically, you know, just it's it's always just going to be either the left wing or Democratic Party and the right wing or Republican Party in power, and the Democratic Party just basically attacks liberties from the left side of the aisle, whereas the Republican Party attacks liberties from the right side of the aisle. And so that's why you don't kind of ascribe to voting either way, because it's just kind of a pendulum swing. And, and meanwhile, liberties are being eroded either way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I think that that specifically that the switching of parties is, is on purpose in that it seems to go, you know, every eight years, the uh, White House will shift to the opposite side. And I think that's like a tool 
um, that is being used to attack. And but yes, like you said, that Republicans are attacking liberty from the right, and you know, et cetera. Yeah, and I mean, I, and there's definitely merit to that as well. I mean, I, I absolutely, I absolutely consider that the way the way I look at it is that the the Republicans are hardly libertarian by any measure, for sure. Right. And Trump is hardly libertarian by any measure, for sure. But I think the Republicans in Trump of today are very different than the Republicans of the 80s, for example, and even of the 90s. And they are a lot more open to more socially liberal-leaning ideas than they have in the past. So again, not even remotely libertarian, but not as offensive to me personally as they have been in the past. So as far away as they are from it, at the same time, the Democrats, it seems like that they have marched so far to the left on so many things, while still probably maintaining socially liberal policies, you know, but um, that they're so economically left wing that I see them as so much more dangerous than what the Republican Party could be. And part of part of my also leaning towards being a little bit more okay, I guess you could say, with Republicans being in power than the Democrats is, and this is something that's going to ruffle a lot of libertarian feathers. This is something that I've has ruffled a lot of, I guess you could say, rank and file or kind of standard libertarian perspective feathers is I, as a consequentialist libertarian, as a, what I call myself as a real politic libertarian, is I actually believe, I actually believe in American hegemony. I think that in, at the end of the day, there is an unfortunate reality of a pecking order. There is going to be a superpower that's on top. And as unfortunate as it is, uh, it, it's better for it, at least for now, for it to be America than, for example, the Soviet Union or the Chinese government, which are all liking to jockey into that position. And that the alternatives of something like that, of like uh, multiple superpowers um, competing for that top role position, results in situations like World War One, World War Two, which have far more ugly impact than one that really nobody can challenge. And on top of that, at least the values, you know, kind of of America, that whole American exceptionalism, I guess you could say, is much more preferable than the alternatives. And markets are as as kind of highly imperfect as they are. You're seeing you see markets thriving more around the world than you have in the past because of the values that America has kind of propagated, I suppose you could say. So that is one that is one thing, I guess you could say, where. Uh, where that might be part of why I lean being a little bit more okay with the Republican Party. Um, I support libertarianism maximally so at home, and I don't like what a lot of the Republican Party does. I don't like trade wars. I don't like tariffs. I don't like any of that. But being someone who just who weighs the alternatives and looks at, okay, I don't like the, the Republican Party. I don't like the Democratic Party. But we're going to have a Democrat president or we're going to have a Republican president. Which one, which cock am I going to be more willing to swallow down in my throat? <laughs> which one am I going to be more okay with being shoved down my throat? And it's just kind of a cock getting shoved down my throat, whether I like it or not. It's being shoved down all of our throats. And um, 
we kind of got to pick which one it is. And it sounds cliche, but I think it's just reality. It's an ugly reality. And the ugly reality of the world is, is kind of unavoidable. And so at least in the meantime, that's the perspective I take while being like, you know what, anything to keep the leftist hordes at bay right now. Yeah. And when there's, there's a lot that you went into and like a lot mm. that, you know, I'd, I'd love to discuss, but I guess, uh, I'll just pick one and, uh, mm-hmm. then I'll let Cotton join in after, after you give your response. But, um, I, I guess really just back to kind of what I was, uh, trying to say earlier, um, I, I have a question, and that is, do you, like, with all of the big government kind of authoritarian measures that are being taken right now by Trump, the Republican president, like, do mm-hmm. you think that, let's say, for instance, Obama or Hillary were in, like, the uh, the office of president right now, do you think that they would be able to accomplish the same policy goals or do you think that having, you know, that the the leftist president or the, you know, what, what is seen as a leftist president in the, in the White House, like, do you think that the the people who are all like the, the MAGA, the MAGA people, do you think that they'd be against all that and they'd push back and, you know, maybe keep some of this legislation legislation from going through? So uh, let me see if I get the question right. So are you saying that let's are you saying if it wasn't Trump as president, if it was someone like Obama or Hillary, am I getting that right? Right. That would they do? Do I think that some of these really like the hardcore MAGA people would support things the way they are now if it was one of these other people as president? Is that the question? Right. Do you think that they'd hold on to, you know, the, the principle of small government, unlike what they're doing now? No, I think it's definitely it's tribalism all the way down. I absolutely think that, you know, whether I, and I also think you could flip the coin it'd be the other way. The people who are complaining about things that Trump is doing, if it was, of course, Obama or Hillary that was doing it, they'd be all for it. And they'd be rationalizing it and propagating it and arguing for it just if their tribe was doing it versus because the person that they hate is doing it. And I think Republicans and conservatives, generally speaking, it would be the same thing. Um so, no, I think I think for the vast majority of people who support Trump and the vast majority of people, I don't want to say support Trump, I want to say really who love Trump and the vast majority of people who hate Trump, that it's just tribalism all the way down. I can only speak for myself personally. And I think that I do think that the government, if it were under an Obama or a Hillary, which, by the way, let's lest we forget Hillary was for a Democrat versus Trump who's Republican. Hillary was the war hawk. Hillary was the war president. She was the one who wanted to surround China with SAM sites by her own quote. She was the one who wanted to, you know, uh, put a no fly zone uh, over the near the border of Russia, which would definitely stoke um, attentions there as well. She was itching to go to war. So I think that, so I guess my point is, what I'm getting at is that people like Hillary and people like Obama who really love the administrative state, this is one thing Trump and people like uh, Steve Bannon hate is the administrative state. As libertarians, we should hate the administrative state, the growth of the administrative state, the deep state, things like that. Uh, Hillary and Obama love that kind of shit. And I think they would have grown it 
I think the policy they would have act, enacted would have been much more offensive to liberty than as even as much as the offensive policies that Trump has enacted have been. I think they are less so than would have been under them. And I think he's done some things that we as libertarians should champion um, as, as, as highly imperfect and in many ways annoying as the Trump presidency can be. Does that answer your question? Yeah, for the most part, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, I have a friend that is a really big Trump supporter. And uh, this was, we had a conversation maybe a year ago. And in the same conversation, I got him to, uh, he first said that the Fed needs to lower interest rates. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I baited him a little bit. And then later I got him to say, treating economics like a science is stupid. And I was, <laughs> I, I said, well, I agree. But don't you see that you just contradicted yourself there? But I mean, it's. If if Daddy Trump wants it, then you know, it must be okay because he's playing sixteen D chess. <laughs> you know, right, right. Yeah, I mean, um, I, go ahead. Yep. Uh, I had a question about the American uh, hege hegemony. Hegemony. Um, that is an idea that I am very sympathetic to. Mm. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with it because I do have some problems. Um, right. Part of my problem is that due to the, the cyclic nature of government, America is down a path that it cannot uh, pay for. Right. Figuratively yeah. and literally, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also China is incredibly involved in Africa right now. Yes. Yes. And that is scary. Yes. So I, I, I'm, I can't see like it believing that if you did not have a choice and there was one totalitarian or semi totalitarian government that was not the official ruler of the world, but was basically, yeah. Uh, I can make, it, it makes sense to me that, that we would want that to be America. But then I also think the, the logical next step, seeing the, how the state has been since its inception is that even if we want that, it still won't last. And there's still yeah. some action we have to take if we want to keep it active or if we have to constantly calculate which country is the uh the right ruler yeah I, I, it, it seems somewhat like a uh like a utilitarian argument there's well, just a incredible amount of calculation that needs to be done mm -hmm. at every step well i think it's important to recognize that um utilitarianism is consequentialism is consequentialist yeah. but but consequentialism is not necessarily utilitarian. So all utilitarians are consequentialists, but not all consequentialists are utilitarian. So we don't have to look at this from a utilitarian perspective. No, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying the, we do. Right, I'm just right. saying that there, there's a similar, to, in my mind, there would be a similar amount of calculation that would have to go. Oh, sure. Not necessarily utilitarian uh, mm. calculation, but just in a similar vein. 
Yes, yes. You're calculating exactly. It's you're talking yeah. cold calculation, and there's there's some there's some certainly some ugly variables to consider. If I mean, if we are to use some flat as flowery language as we can, there's some uh, very ugly variables that go into that algorithm that exactly that you're talking about. But also at the end of the day, we can't write. And I think it sounds like you agree is we can't deny that. Okay. The goal of states and the reality is we have states and states aren't going away anytime soon. Unfortunately, it would be nice if they could, but they're not. And so we happen to be very lucky that we're in one that, that more or less, for the most part, relatively speaking, compared to the vast majority of other places in the world, at least has a cultural value and affinity towards liberty and individualism, Western philosophy, and the Enlightenment, somewhat, you know, social justice warriors be damned and postmodernists be damned. Um, but that if you look back and you look at the, the last hundred years, and you look at the major superpowers that have been jockeying to become the world hegemon, such as the Soviet Union, such as China, or such as Nazi Germany, for example, countries like this, that one of them was going to end up world hegemon, one way or the other, Japan, for example. And if you can only choose amongst one of them, you can't choose a, a libertarian world, unfortunately. So we have to look at and, and recognize what what those alternatives are, and I think it's like you said that it's better for it to be America. There's a there's, there's I, I'd have to dig it up, but there's a great piece. I forget his name. This is British philosopher, and he's a British nationalist. He hates America. He finds everything about America disgusting and lowbrow. He sees us as call as as rebellious colonists. And he hates like oh, McDonald's, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. All this shit. Everything about America, he finds so distasteful. But at the, and he's a he's a British nationalist. But mixed in with all that, he he longs for the days of when the the British Empire was the world hegemon. But he is thankful that it is America right now. And there's one thing he it, it was a great article. I'd have to dig it up. And it was worded so well, it's written so well. But at the end of the article, he said something that really stuck with me that I thought was really good. He said, death to America, but not yet. Yeah. Death to America, but not yet. So, though, so I kind of see it like this. Is yeah, yeah, I do think it's unsustainable. I think that it's good that America is the world hegemon compared to the alternatives. Compared to the Chinese alternative, which is certainly jockeying to become the world hegemon. We don't want China to be ruling us or de facto ruling us or leveraging us or anything like that in any soft or hard power kind of way. But with us being there for now and hopefully for the next hundred years or however long it needs to be, I do think, and we're kind of seeing this, where markets are innovating and evolving to the point where um, for-profit businesses, larger and smaller corporations, are able to skirt government authority more and more and wield more authority on their own. And so, the, so I do think over time that the state is going to become, its teeth are going to become less and less sharp, and it's going to fall into irrelevance over the course of the next 
you know, could be, it could definitely certainly take many generations, could be hundreds of years. But I do think that markets and business are going to grow to the point where they eclipse the state. Now, of course, if you're going to have leftist heads exploding at this, they're going to think, oh, my God, you're talking like corporations running, the, running all of society and so on and so forth. And I mean, we don't know what that's going to look like, but I do think it would certainly look a lot better than the state, you know, running everything. Um, but I do think eventually that hegemony, um, especially if it's U.S. hegemony, is going to become less and less powerful compared to business interests and compared to as long as we protect the Internet, I think, as long as we protect the Internet especially, and markets continue to evolve and businesses can continue to innovate, then um, we'll start to eclipse the state. And I th I'm personally an optimist when it comes to liberty, but I don't think we're going to see it in our lifetime. I think you're talking many, I think it'd take many generations probably. Well, if spreading, I, I want to say one more thing. Mm. Uh, if spreading like the American spirit is good, and I'm not saying it isn't, I, I mm -hmm. tend to agree. Um, I think that really makes the Boog Boys out to be heroes then. Mm. I mean, because they're, yeah. they're like some of the only people in the, in this view, they're some of the only people that are like keeping the original American spirit live, alive. And then the other thing is like part of the parts of American culture that have that led the country to being so successful are dying, you know. So I I don't have high. Ho and then the other thing about about markets eclipsing government, uh, I wish that were. I hope that's true, but I'm, you know, I'm waiting for the announcement that they're going to nationalize the farming industry. I'm waiting for it. I mean, it's definitely the farming industry is, there's no question that the farming industry, I think it's been the case for the last 60 or 70, maybe even 80 years after FDR started the policies involving with subsidizing the agriculture mm -hmm. industry and, and, you know, destroying crops and which I think still goes today to keep prices yeah. high and all that bullshit from the, the from the depression and whatnot. That's still definitely there. There's no question about that. And I mean, how many steps away from the way it is now are they from nationalizing it? I mean, I, I do think they're still pretty far away from it, but there's, there's no question. I definitely agree that it's a very corrupt. A lot of industries have been poisoned and it probably wouldn't be that many steps if they really wanted to take control of them. They could do that. But I suppose I am a little bit more optimistic in that as poisoned as many of these industries are, that and, and certainly we don't have the same culture that we did, you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, that gave rise to the beauty that is America, the American experiment. We still have that more than anyone else in the world. Now, of course, I, that's you know that's a really low bar to set. You could definitely say that America is the 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 fastest horse in the glue race, you know. But <laughs> you know, I don't know if that if that's if that's a, a reflection on our culture, certainly part of it, or the American government and whatnot. But I'm still optimistic about it because you still have so much innovation going on. In American markets, you still have all that innovation going on in technology, online, with you know stuff going on with space, for example. I mean, the government has taken a step back from, you know, moving into the moving into space and corporations and for-profit businesses and innovators 
and idea men are looking into space right now. You know, so I so I still have some hope. I mean, all we can really have is hope, I think, in the end. And all we can really do is continue to spread the message of liberty and do what we can and fight the leftist hordes intellectually and, you know, philosophically. Um, otherwise, what do we have? You know, all, all we can do is kind of throw up our hands and just kind of give up. So, but, but I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm still optimistic. Definitely no way we can know either way, though. Um, earlier you were talking about how eventually you were hoping that uh, businesses uh, growing in, and, uh, you know, developing technology, et cetera, uh, will eventually eclipse government and make it irrelevant and, uh, and all that. Uh, I, was, I was just wondering, what, what we're seeing today is, like, especially, like, if you look at the uh, stimulus package and, you know, and things like that, or um, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that a lot of like large corporations, like they'll actually advocate and lobby for more regulations. Oh yeah. Uh, in order to like stifle competition, like do, do you do you not see? Um, like I I personally see like the top like the top end of businesses like the like the really powerful corporations as more benefiting from government and really exist like existing at the level that they are because of government. Mm. So yeah, yeah. I was just, yeah. I was just wondering okay. if, if maybe you could go into like, just maybe go into that a little bit more in like how you, how you think that, uh, maybe like smaller businesses will uh, break the, break the chains of these, not monopolies, but near monopolies and, you know, these, these larger corporations and how that would, uh, you know, eventually, uh, you know, lead to the dissolution of the state. Sure. And I wouldn't even say that, I mean, God knows what the dissolution of the state is, but at the, I almost see it like right. as approaching zero. You know what I mean? Like you never actually hit zero. I think the state will yeah. always be there in some form, unfortunately. But, you know, talking at extremes, God knows how many generations I would, you know, suspect this might be in the future, however many hundreds of years, maybe a thousand years. I don't know. But it could be, you know, whereas now it's, you know, I don't know what, 20, I'm throwing a number, let's say it's 20% of GDP or something, you know, maybe, you know, you're talking, you know, 1% of GDP back to 1%, then 0.1% and 0.01% way, 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 way in the future. But anyway, yeah, no, there's definitely something to reflect on, which is that at least as it is now, the way it works now is you have the big corporations, they benefit from these regulations, they write the regulations, and it's a revolving door of regulators, and lobbyists and people in these corporations that, you know, that prop these systems up there's no question about that i would never deny that um and it's most certainly problematic i do think though that to not forget a lot of people i mean we have these huge corporations and they have a lot of power and they some of them have hundreds of thousands of employees um the largest corporations have thousands of employees they have tens of thousands of employees but 
smaller, more local and regional businesses, when people think of corporations, they, especially usually talk to leftists, they think, oh, corporations, corporations, corporations. They always have this idea in their head of the big like Walmart, Amazon-esque kind of, uh, you know, four GM kind of corporations. But the vast majority of corporations are small businesses. And these right. small businesses throughout every state, local, regional level, whether you're talking banks or whether you're talking, you know, um, you know, construction companies and everything, there is a niche for every size of business. The largest corporations definitely hold a lot of power and they enact legislation that benefits them through the state. But these don't forget that these businesses, these large, super large corporations have been around that they, they flare up and then they go away. They flare up and then they break apart. They flare up and then they break apart. You go as far back, you're talking like, you know, uh, Ma Bell, Bell Atlantic, which was a monopoly propped up by the state and it dissolved. And you have, uh, it used to be all Microsoft. I mean, you'd never think in the 90s that Apple would be able to compete with Microsoft, that anyone would be able to compete with Microsoft. And Microsoft still dominates pretty much every, there's no question about that, but there are alternatives there. Android has computers now. And Google is even now eclipsing Microsoft. Apple is more liquid than any, I think, corporation out there in the world. So, um, and Google was, Google started way behind Microsoft. I think Google uh, went public in the mid 2000s, I think it was late 2000s, but they started as a web browser in the late 90s. And Microsoft was one of the biggest corporations in the world, if not the biggest co corporation in the world at the time. But they came up right behind them. And Google arguably has eclipsed them in many ways. And eventually it's going to happen with Google too. So I do think that, yeah, I mean, these corporations get huge and they dig in their heels and they get their claws into the system and whatnot. But while it's definitely a poison system, I do think that they do benefit markets. I do think that they still, as corrupt and poisoned as the system is, that they will not have a, strang a permanent stranglehold on the system. I think they get undermined by more innovative competitors um, as they come up. Um, Tesla, for example, I mean, you, you would have never thought that GM and Ford, and Ford, I mean, Ford had a monopoly through the early 20th century. And you have all these other Japanese companies come up and oh, unseat them. Ford is found on road dead now. I mean, they're still a big company, but there's still so much competition that takes place. And these even near monopolies end up falling by the wayside. They get lazy or they just can't maneuver as well because they become so big, so lumbering, and they can react so slowly to these innovators that pop up behind them. That um, I, Not to say that I'm not at all concerned about them, but I am a lot more optimistic about competitive markets and their ability to undermine these players that seem unseatable that are constantly being unseated. You go back to even like US Standard Oil in the late 1800s, they had a pure monopoly on, on everything, on oil. And then they thought they could take advantage of their position because they had, it was something like 97% percent of the market, which none of these companies we're even talking about now even come close to. You know, we talk about them as near monopolies and they're, you know, you're talking, you know, somewhere anywhere from 50 to 70% of market share of, in their respective industries. US Standard Oil had, in the in 90, high 90% in the late 1800s. As soon as they started to 
take advantage of their position, raise prices and so on and so forth, and start to buy up their competitors and try to put a stranglehold on their, on their industry, you had um, Russian competitors pop up, other American competitors pop up, and they were unseated, and they fell to half of, uh, less than half of the market share within, I think it was 10 or 20 years. And that happens today too. So, so I'm still optimistic about that. that. That stuff definitely happens, and that's why I think in the end, you know, whenever I hear leftists talk about how, you know, oh, corporations own the government. You can't trust corporations. They own the government. They own the government. Okay. But you want to give the government more power. So corporations own the government, but you want to give the government more power, even though the corporations own the government, supposedly. So they always talk about this stuff. But uh, at the end of the day, I think the answer is always to do our best to support the idea of less regulation less taxes, less government power, and more local regional market competition. And that oh, that just keeps going back. I keep coming back to not just voting, but anything in the toolbox for advancing liberty, anything that throws a wrench in the system that makes it more difficult for the state to grow. And I think compared to the alternatives that um, that we should we should focus on that while we spread that message of, of kind of hope and liberty and markets and looking and seeing what's happening, which I still think is optimistic. Yeah, um, for a good example of uh, rebellion against a uh, tyrannical private government or pr a private company, uh, I'm not feeling well, guys. Give give me a, cut me some slack. Um, That's right. I'm always I'm always cutting you slack, Cotton. It's okay. We love. Thank you. you. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. If only you could cut my hair. Uh, <laughs> and wax, wax and quite a bit yeah, of his body because that's. Happening. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna ask you to wax my body. That that's a, that's probably a little too much. <laughs> just, uh, just, but, just around the bikini line. Just the pubes. Just around the bikini line. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I, bit, right? I look pretty good in my bikini right now. Okay, all right, that's uh, <laughs> uh, Y'all should, everybody should check out uh, Smoke Pit Storytime that Vet Arcist Actual puts out. And uh, in episode seven, he does a podcast with Matt from uh, Status Quo about the Battle of Blair Mountain, hmm. uh, which is an incredibly interesting story. And mm, y'all yes. should, y'all should check that out. Uh, but while we still have time, uh, if it's okay with everybody, I'd like to change the subject. Mm. Um, your uh, banner picture on Twitter is Albert Camus. <laughs> yes, yes, sir. I'm a I'm a fan of Albert Camus. Would definitely. you call Would you call yourself an existentialist? Uh, I more specifically, I would I would call myself an absurdist existentialist. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I would I would certainly lean that way of the of the of the Camusian type, not of the Kierkegaardian type. You don't like Kierkegaard? I, it's not that I don't like him. I just prefer Camus. Yeah, I prefer yeah. Camus. Kierkegaard is a is a little more is a little more Christian for my tastes. Yeah. Um. But definitely not Sartre. <laughs> uh, no, no. Uh, hell, <laughs> hell is not other people. Hell is Jean Paul Sartre. <laughs> no, I can I can pronounce you know, French pretty well, but... but even even Albert Camus is a, a leftist, but but uh, I'll uh, I cut him some slack. 
Yeah, but he was like a, a left anarchist. Yeah, at least he was that, yes. So I don't have a problem with that. I do have a problem with uh, his view on uh, the Algerian Civil War. But that's like the only thing. Mm, yeah, basically, uh, I, I mesh pretty well with Albert Camus philosophically, but I like with so many things, I, it's so important to be able to tease out and separate things like, you know, chew the meat and spit the bones. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, most definitely. I think uh, that's, that's okay. Just like with Rothbard, I loved Rothbard for a while, but you know, there are some views he, that, that he had that I was like, no, I'm going to just, I'm just going to leave this one alone. I'm not going to touch that. This I like that. I don't like. And yeah, I guess you could say it's the same with uh, with Albert Camus. Well, Rothbard went with uh, he kind of had a couple of phases. <laughs> yes. Um, and he went through a little bit of like a paleo conservative phase. Yes. Yes. But uh, and I I like Martin Heidegger even though long after he wrote Being in Time he became a Nazi. Right. Right. Yep. 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 Absolutely. So why don't you? For the last little bit of the podcast, why don't you give like your pitch? Oh no, we still got plenty of time, dude. I'll talk. I'll talk for as long as you guys want. I could talk forever. Which <laughs> might not be a good thing, but. <laughs> well, wh- why don't you give like your basic pitch for uh, uh, existential or uh, absurdist existentialism? Well, I I came around to it like this. What I guess you could say where it started for me is. As someone who for a while really, you know, becoming a libertarian and kind of a Ron Paul-leaning Rothbardian libertarian of the deontological stripe of of that kind, you have a very firm, I'd even say zealous belief and view in certain moral principles and certain ways about the way you think the world does work or should work. And I guess you could say in my early to mid-20s, maybe even some of my late 20s, I held that view. When I had, when I started having children, I've got three kids. I've got a six-year-old daughter, a three-year-old son, and a seven-month-old daughter. And when I started having kids, things you start thinking about things differently in life. You start to think about your values, what you care about, and you start to think about meaning and what and what things mean the most to you and what you would do to protect those things and you start to reevaluate not just your priorities but your values and when you start to do that you start to reevaluate your concept of principles and values in general and on how those mesh with the world around you and the people and why they do the things that they do and when you kind of rub up against these things and you reflect on them, it's hard to put people in perspective until you have children. But meaning starts to kind of change form a bit. And I guess you could say it becomes a little more relativistic. And so this is where I say, for example, the postmodernists it's not to say that they're right, because especially the current postmodernists that you hear about, they go off the rails with it. They go utterly off the rails. 
But there is, a, there is some merit to what they're talking about when it comes to ethics and values and, you know, and history and where everything comes from and why we are the way we are, why we believe what we do and where meaning comes from. And that is when I started to approach Albert Camus. That's when I started to read Albert Camus because I was like, where I don't understand. I thought I knew what I knew. I thought I believed what I believed and I thought that that was right. I thought what I thought about what's right and wrong and meaning was pretty cut and dry. And now suddenly after having kids and being presented with certain situations and thinking about what I would do in certain situations, that's all turned upside down. And that's when I started reading more Albert Camus. And actually the first book that I read, and I know it's not, it's not a pitch so much as it's kind of my history of kind of him and some of these concepts was The Fall. And I feel like The Fall by Albert Camus, you know, is uh, kind of goes under the radar a little bit. It was the first book that I read by him. And it's a, it's a fucking heavy book, man. It's a heavy ass book. But reading that book and reading the conversations going on in it, you reflect on yourself more and you reflect on the things that you think are that about morality and about yourself and about ethics. And beyond that, I started to explore more about Albert Camus. And in terms of meaning, where we get meaning, he talks about Sisyphus, you know, pushing the boulder up the hill. And part of my whole uh, personal discovery or lack thereof of, obje of objective meaning and exploring more relative subjective meaning um, after having children and reevaluating these things um, help uh, talking about Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the hill. And you're never going to get over the hill. You're never going to find objective meaning, but you're going to search for it regardless. You're going to find that meaning in life and you're going to create that meaning for yourself. And for me, it was my children and what I knew that I would do to protect them and how it changed my views on things and changed the person that I was and became, and it made me a better person. And that subjective meaning that came about from that really ties in a lot with that's objectively really ties in a lot with what kind of Albert Camus talks about that, you know, the, the, the search for meaning, the absurd arises, the absurd, we call ourselves absurdists. The absurd arises from man's attempt to find objective meaning, meaning in his world, which rubs up against the reality that no objective meaning exists. And so the absurd arises from that. And so the only thing you can do is, you know, like what? There's no meaning in the world. So what, are you going to kill yourself? No, you can't kill yourself. You know, that's kind of the existential dread, the existential issue that the exist existentials deal with is nihilism and just, oh, it's all hopeless, just kill yourself. But that's not the answer. The answer is to create your own meaning, find your own meaning, it, whether it's your children whether it's having children or whether it's some other kind of legacy that you're going to leave, leave, or it's something that brings you happiness in some way, find that meaning created on your own. That's the best thing that you can do as an answer to the friction that comes about from 
needing meaning by being that in, in our human nature, needing to find that meaning, and there not being one that you can objectively find. And so the absurd arrives out of that. And so it's like pushing that boulder up the hill. You're never going to push the boulder up over the hill. Sisyphus is not going to get the boulder over the hill. But in spite of that, he's going to spite the gods. And all we can do is spite the reality of the cosmos, that there is no meaning out there, and take this precious time that we have and create that meaning for ourselves. So that's how you deal with the absurd. That's how you deal with the existentialist reality, the reality that there is no objective meaning out there. There is no meaning. We're probably a mistake. Maybe God exists. Maybe he doesn't. There's no way to know. We can't know these things. We can't know much anything. So just take the time that you have and create meaning for yourself. That's at least my story behind it. That's my kind of pitch. That's how I handle and look at the existentialist dread that you get presented with. Yeah, you mentioned the postmodernists, and uh, th this I have a I have a postmodernist joke. Uh, <laughs> I agree with Foucault when he says that schools are prisons. I do not agree with Foucault's modern followers who say that waiting in line at the bakery is a prison. <laughs> oh man, it's how I'm trying. <laughs> I, I came up with that. Uh, when you first mentioned the postmodernists. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I do think the postmodernists, I think Foucault gets a bit of a bad rap. You know, yeah. I, I, don't, I think that he would be very irritated with the neo-postmodernists of today, and especially the kind of postmodern social justice warriors. They don't even, that those don't even really mesh together. The, the Marxists and the postmodernists, it doesn't really mesh because Marxists talk about, they're, 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 they believe in objective values. They believe in objective value of labor. They believe in objective morality and things like that. And the postmodernists are like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? It's all subjective all the way down, which I think goes off the rails. They go off the rails with it a bit too much. But they found a way to kind of mesh those things together which obviously like Jordan Peterson bringing him up, he kind of goes after that, that uh, he calls them postmodern neo-Marxists, I think, which is a weird catch 22 because it doesn't mesh, but they found a way to mesh it, I guess. So, well, I mean, like the, the, the postmodern Marxists are also, they're Marxists and, you know, they'll say workers unite and blah, 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 but right. they're also fifth year seniors that are getting a poetry degree they yeah. are not a worker, you know. Mm. So oh, th yeah. there's a bit of cognitive dissonance there. So it, it it wouldn't surprise me if their whole entire ideology was made up of one giant cognitive dissonance. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, you, you could definitely say that. I mean, there's I have to pull it up. There's this great meme, or I guess it's not a meme. It's a piece of art that was done, and I like to spread it around every once in a while. It shows like your typical like stereo your stereotypical social justice warrior like androgynous leftist kind of person you can't tell if it's a boy or a girl they're wearing like a chase shirt and they're kind of sitting down it's like shows this person sitting on the backs of like these laborers from around the world they're picking like coffee beans they're I've doing this have you seen that one? Oh, it's beautiful yeah. and so they're sitting on their fucking their high horse you know but really they're sitting on the backs of these people that they talk about how they're trying to help and all these things and so on and so forth. But they're benefiting from all these things at the same time, from so much privilege 
and they have no capacity for self-reflection on this whatsoever. They don't, they don't appreciate it. They, they mock it while at the same time, they're, they're a part of the very system that, that they supposedly hate. Uh, so it, it just, it's all virtue signaling all the way down, of course. Yeah. I love how the, the young Marxists, you know, are organizing their itinerary for the, the socialist meeting or whatever on their iPhone while they're, you know, on a Delta flight with their Starbucks coffee. Exactly. With their, if you can find with their that... T-shirt that they bought for like $30 yeah. that was made for like two cents overseas <laughs> in, in, in friggin' Vietnam. If you can find that picture, send it to me and we'll use it as the episode thumbnail. <laughs> oh, I've got it. I've got, I've got my, I've got a folder in my computer on my network attached storage, just filled with memes, just all the way down and just all this kind of like artwork and stuff. So I'll be able to dig it up pretty quickly, send it right over to you. <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, and then the other thing I, I, I'm sure not many people, more people have probably heard of Camus now. Cause he's, he's kind of becoming a pop culture figure. Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm sure not many people have heard of Sartre, but I mean, mm. If you want to, like, look at... Yeah, I'm not upset. But, uh, (laughs) like, try reading uh, The Stranger. You know, it's Mm. Albert Camus' most famous book. And then try reading Nausea by Sartre. The Stranger is, like, Jesus Christ, it's so much better. Nausea is is a horrible book. I've never actually read Nausea. I've only, by by, um, Sartre, I've only read the... um... Uh, what was the what was the one? Everybody's trapped in the room. That's like his. Oh, the hell is other people. That's I, that. I think I think he says that in a in nausea. It might have been like a selection mm. from it. Maybe it, uh, it might have been a short ago. story. Yeah, I only read the one book by him, and I'm a little, as familiar with his philosophical views. Um, so I'm not going to fail, but I've not I've not read nausea. Oh, it's a crappy book. I had to read it, and I hated every minute of it. Oh God! Did you have to read it for like college or something? Or... Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The I, I took a class in French existentialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the first philosophy class I ever took, and uh, the guy we spent a tiny amount of time on uh, Camus. It's too bad. Yeah, and and he was speaking like we spent a day on Camus. And he was very derogatory towards Camus. Mm. And then we spent a third of the semester on Sartre. Jesus. I know. And we had to read, like, we read a tiny selection from The Stranger and a tiny selection from The Myth of Sisyphus. Mm -hmm. And then we had to read all of Nausea, uh, the entire essay, Existentialism is a Humanism. And then uh, selections from... uh, essays in existentialism and selections from being and nothingness. And it was just horrible. It's unreadable. I mean, that's part of the problem. Like mm. he was trying to be Heidegger, just making all this convoluted stuff, except the problem is in Heidegger, once you get past, once you understand how to read him, there's actual substance. Right. In right. Sartre, it's just like, Oh, you're just either. It's just empty platitudes or you're just rehashing Heidegger. Mm. Uh, <laughs> It's funny, like talking about rehashing, you know, rehashing people and also about unreadable books. 
you know, like I went through, I went through a phase in my twenties where, you know, my fascination, you know, as one does with Ayn Rand, you know, and I tried and I tried to read Atlas Shrugged. Holy shit. It's fucking, a lot of people really like Atlas Shrugged and that's fine. I couldn't do it, man. I couldn't do it. It was so tedious, Mm -hmm. so tedious. I found it unreadable. And not only that, but I mean, she, I don't remember. Did she give credit where credit was due when it came to her? I mean, she wasn't a, she wasn't a pure Sterner, right? Obviously talking about like Max Sterner, but she definitely got a lot of the, a lot of, uh, pulled a lot of views from Max Sterner and the, the egoism of, of Max Sterner. So I don't, I don't know if she ever mentioned him. Yeah, I don't. Th- I feel like I'm trying to remember. Like maybe she might have mentioned him in passing, but the egoism um, is very Sterner, right? I mean, I'd say I'm more, I'm more Sterner, right, than Randian these days. If anything, I'm more like a personal ethical egoist, I guess you could say. Um, but, but I don't remember Ayn Rand really giving credit where credit was due. Rehashing a lot of ideas that Max Sterner talked about back in the. Um, back in the 1800s there so that yeah. goes way back that goes way back but she didn't even touch on it and atlas shrug is completely unreadable it was completely unreadable <laughs> well, it, it, it makes sense that like people incline towards libertarianism and by that i mean autists mm-hmm. uh it makes sense that they like her novels because they're yeah. not very good literature they're just kind of <laughs> they speak very plainly yeah. And everything is uh, very obvious, and uh, there's no uh, there's no beauty to it, as you would typically right. find in, in great literature. Right. Uh, right. It's just it's just very flat. I guess is a good word yeah. to, word it's to flat use. Flat and tedious. It's a little too preachy, also. Yeah. You know, that's, that's one thing I've noticed in a lot of like, quote-unquote libertarian novels is they tend to get too preachy and like they throw in the you know obligatory libertarian platitudes that I mean every libertarian who reads these libertarian books we all know it already like maybe a lot of us maybe some of us really want to hear the same thing over and over again but if you're looking for a good novel it's really hard to find a good libertarian novel that doesn't preach to you that doesn't feel like you know it's going to convert you or anything like that, you know, like there's a few that I've read that I've really enjoyed, um, which would be, um, what was it? Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein was really good. It was really good. Very readable. And also for something more recent was um, The Golden Age by John C. Wright. It's actually a trilogy. The Golden Age by John C. Wright. That's, ta- that's you're talking, I think it was, it's, it takes place thousands and thousands of years in the future or something like that. And um, he's, unfortunately, he's, He's pro-intellectual property, unfortunately, very (laughs) anti-IP, but he builds his kind of society around a libertarian society, but it's it's an intellectual property-based libertarian society. It takes place thousands of years in the future where people navigate the world through these projections, in a sense, and they basically have unlimited power and they have unlimited life, they're immortal and things like that. It sounds like, oh, well, everybody's basically like a demigod. And essentially, yes, but there's some really good stuff that happens um, in the series of books, and it doesn't preach to you. It has really good sci-fi, and it has interesting characters. 
So they do exist out there, but they're hard to find. Yeah, on that subject of libertarian media, uh, I want to say one thing, and then I'll turn it over to Liberty Zero. I always thought that To Kill a Mockingbird was a really great libertarian book. I might be reading into it. I might be reading mm -hmm. what I want to read. Uh, but I always thought that that had strong libertarian themes, or at least anti-court themes. You know, Innocent Man was convicted anyway. Um, but the other thing, I've mentioned this on a... I think I've mentioned it on the podcast. Uh, the movie... Um, the Life of Emile Zola. I haven't seen that. That is a very libertarian movie, and it's an incredible story. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, mm. I definitely check it out. It's one of my favorite movies. I think that you mentioned that in the episode that we didn't release. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going yeah. to say that uh, when I read Atlas Shrugged, I actually did enjoy it. Uh and, and I don't have a problem with you saying it's unreasonable because I, right. I totally understand that. Uh, my, what I found, like, I, I really did enjoy it until I got to the very end where, like, uh, I think it's John Galt gets on the radio and then he just delivers this super long link, speech. Super long speech. And then I just, mm. I <laughs> lost. Like, at that point. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know, like, I got to the point, I'm like, and I'm like, four pages in i'm like when's he gonna end this and then you know i, I start like skipping pages like to see like okay when's this gonna end it's like oh, gosh, 50 yeah. pages in or something like that i'm like okay well i'm gonna save this for later and i never did but uh <laughs> and that's I, the most famous part of the book it, <laughs> right right it right was it was super tedious uh but i like like you said it, it the, the the whole book was very um like a blunt and kind of to the point not very uh flat it was kind of allegorical flat. or anything like that yeah and, you know it's it's giving you the whole uh you know their, their thought process like completely uh and i did enjoy that part because like at that at that point i was like really open to uh like those I, those ideas yeah yeah it was it was like like i i i was already like seeing them you're consuming uh, everything you were at the stage where you were consuming everything that you could like i remember that yeah absolutely right yeah yeah this, this is one thing i mean it's one thing i even though i couldn't really enjoy the book part of it could have been because i tried to read it l later on mm. after i had already consumed so much like rothbard and consumed like consumed you know uh 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 there's so much libertarian philosophy, whether you're talking articles online or books by, you know, by Ron Paul or Milton Friedman or Murray Rothbard or yeah, everybody. And so then once you've already kind of heard everything, it's hard to read a novel that's preaching about the same stuff that you've already done. But I also kind of I am sympathetic to the value of Atlas Shrugged and I get it because also, it, kind of the way I see the Beatles, right? Like, I could never fucking listen to the Beatles. I just can't right. fucking listen to the Beatles. But I give the Beatles the credit where credit is due because they were the first ones. They should be revered because they came along before anybody else was doing what they were doing. So Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged came along before anyone was really doing stuff like that, was writing stuff like that, and was presenting philosophy in such a coherent way. 
So I get what she was doing. I get the value in that. And I get the value that people got from that. And it's just, it was, it's hard to appreciate it as much, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, you know, down the road. And after, or after, you know, five years of already consuming everything in sight that could be libertarian related, you know? Right. Yeah. And like when I read that, I was like probably the first libertarian book I'd ever read. Yeah. So yeah, it is one of those, one of those eye openers, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally hear that. The first libertarian book I ever read was The Libertarian Mind by David Boaz, who's the president of the Cato Institute. So I'm yeah. basically a statist. Why do you hate Tom Woods? <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Tom Woods, yeah, he's another one. Um, I think I've read the, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, Politically Incorrect Guide to History by him. I read his um, Meltdown book. I read a lot of Shift back then. Like, it's coming back to me now. You know, obviously, the, the, the Ethics of Liberty by Rothbard, um, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, Mises, um, F.A. Hayek, Road to Serfdom. That's right. Oh, my God, the fucking long. Like, you're talking, like, all within the course of, like, a few years, just consuming everything in sight. I think a lot of us did that for a while when we were first kind of exposed to some of these ideas. And then, like, then last, you do Atlas Shrugged, and you're like, oh, what the fuck? I can't fucking do this. You know? <laughs> Well, we better wrap up. Why don't you plug your Twitter and anything else? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, so on Twitter, I am at, uh, you, you find me as uh, Vidivici Venni, uh, but my Twitter handle is uh, at Steve Lollywish, and it's at S-T-E-V-E-L-O-L-Y-O-U-W-I-S-H. Um, and my blog is a Sisyphean Revolt blogspot.com a-s-i-s-y-p-h-e-a-n-r-e-v-o-l-t dot blogspot.com I got some blogs going back from my Ron Paul days that are still in there <laughs> Jesus Christ so you're talking like 10 12 years but some recent stuff too a lot of stuff that I've got drafts on that I just haven't had the time to finish editing and posting anything from you know my fucked up view of of uh, twist on libertarianism, the real politic libertarianism, as I call it, to views on, you know, obviously the coronavirus and Trump and and um, and the whole gender fluidity thing going on right now. Uh, a lot of different stuff on there for people who are interested. And All right. Pretty much it. Well, man, we really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to us. We went into a lot of topics and you're very well versed in like everything that we that we talked about <laughs> it was a great conversation thank you very much i wish sometimes you know i, I can kind of go off into the weeds sometimes and I'd, it turns into a little bit of a stream of consciousness mess but you know it's a, it, it's hard to organize some of these thoughts on the fly but you know I, I i definitely enjoyed my time thank you guys very much for having me on here and i you know i'd love to have a conversation again just about whatever whenever uh, let me know if you guys ever want to do it again. I'm I'm down. Sounds good. Absolutely. All right. Peace out. All right. Well, I'm Liberty Zero, reminding you to zero your rifle. I'm Cottonarchus, telling you to pick cotton voluntarily. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that that's our new signing off. Just that's the first time we tried that. <laughs>
Very nice. And, Very and that's nice. that's where that's like yeah, that's where we're gonna cut cut it off. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, quit while we're ahead. <laughs> <laughs>